Well, good evening. It's good to be back here with you guys. I'm excited for the text tonight. I hope, I hope that the Lord will use it to accomplish all His intended purposes. Well, many of us are familiar with the well-known statement that there are three primary factors to consider when purchasing a property. And they are in no particular order, location, location, and location. Now, obviously, there are a host of other factors to consider. There are other things to weigh in when you're deciding where to live. Is the home going to serve your family well? Will it provide for your needs? Does it work within your budget? But the reality is that so many things about a house can be, it can be changed. Rooms can be added. The layout can be altered. Spaces can be transformed. But you are where you are. The location is the one thing that, that can't be changed. So the notion behind that statement is that when it comes to the purchase of a property, you should give much thought and consideration to the location because that will remain. And when it comes to the Scripture, there are a number of factors that help and assist us in properly interpreting a particular passage. But there is one that rises above the rest. Just as location is king when it comes to real estate, context is king when it comes to properly interpreting a passage of the Bible. If you want to get at the heart of a certain text, if you want to see how an individual section of the, the Bible fits within the, the larger story, you, you must keep that big story in mind. To put it another way, to understand the smaller stories of the Bible, you have to keep in mind that larger storyline of the Bible. And that's certainly true for us this evening as we make our way to the book of Leviticus. Without a proper grasp of where this book sits within the Bible, we're going to fail to learn what we should. A lack of contextual understanding has caused many to see this book simply as a collection of, of outdated rules, a compilation of foreign ritualistic practices, and a host of cultural customs that were for a people and a time far different from ours today. But when we approach the book properly, when we come to the pages of Leviticus with an understanding of the larger biblical story, we see that it's filled with rich and deep truths and a message that is just as relevant today as it was when the Israelites received it thousands of years ago. And so to grasp this book and the meaning of this book, we need to remember what was written in the first two books of the Bible's story. The storyline that is developed in Genesis and Exodus really equips us with the key that's necessary to unlock the meaning of this particular book. So the Bible story opens in Genesis chapter 1 with God being depicted as the eternal creator. All that he does is good and right, and the peak of his creation is humanity, a special creation that bears the very image and likeness of God. This unique creation is meant to enjoy intimate fellowship and unhindered union with God. And we see Adam and Eve experience this in the early chapters of the Bible's story. But we know how this story unfolds. We know that the bliss and the, the joy that mark the opening chapters, they, they don't continue for long. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, when they sinned and went their own way, they forfeited everything. Life in the Garden of Eden with God is no more. Their sin cuts them off from God. They're banished from the Garden and sent away to the East. 
And yet God, in his unimaginable kindness, shows them mercy even in the midst of judgment due to their sin. He makes clear in Genesis 3.15 that somebody is going to come to right the wrongs. Somebody's going to come to reverse the curse. Somebody's going to come to bring about a resolution to the problem. But as you read the Bible, it can be really difficult to believe that those promises are going to come to pass. It can be hard to see how those things are ever going to be played out. As the account of Genesis goes on, there's, there's a worldwide catastrophic flood that fills the earth with death. There's the construction of the Tower of Babel, which is the most anti-God establishment. And even the, the final words of the book refer to Joseph after his death being placed in a coffin. A book that began with the thriving and the flourishing of, of life, a book that started out with such promise, comes to a close like this. And as the Bible story continues in the next book, in the book of Exodus, there are extraordinary things God is doing, and yet it doesn't appear that the problem has been solved. It doesn't appear that the separation that exists between God and humanity has been dealt with. In Exodus 3, when God meets with Moses at the burning bush, he said to him, Do not come near. Take off your sandals. The place on which you stand is holy ground. And after bringing Israel out of Egypt, after freeing them from bondage and slavery, he brings them to Mount Sinai, and the message continues to remain the same. The people were to encamp near the base of Mount Sinai. The presence of God is going to appear to them. And in Exodus 19.12, we read, you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. If the message is clear. The refrain of the Bible is consistent. There is a distinction that exists between God and man. There's a separation due to sin such that humanity cannot get to God on their own. And yet, once again, God acts in unimaginable kindness. He instructs Moses and the people to build the tabernacle that it might function as a sanctuary for the presence of God, that it might act as a meeting place between God and man. Exodus 25.8 communicates the aim of this structure. Here we read, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This is what we as readers of the Bible have been waiting for. This is what we've been longing for since the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the garden. We've been anticipating this type of restoration, the, the restoration of fellowship and union between God and man. But as the book of Exodus comes to a close, all the hope that seems to be built up right here is lost. After the conclusion of the tabernacle, we read in Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. With this statement, it's like all the wind in our sails is just removed. It is as if every bit of hope and encouragement is dashed and gone. Moses can't enter. And if Moses can't enter, the implication is nobody else can either. And with that in mind, we approach the book of Leviticus. With this issue, this problem at the forefront, the book of Leviticus is a book that brings about a solution to this critical problem. 
It's not simply a book of rules and rituals. It's not merely a collection of outdated cultural customs and practices. This is a book that makes clear what must take place for humanity to get back to the presence of God. It shows us exactly what needs to happen for the sin problem to be dealt with and what must occur for life in the presence of God to be a reality once again. Now, the first seven chapters of Leviticus concentrate on the sacrificial system as a whole, which was a massive part of Israel's life and practice. It's in the opening seven chapters that we have much communicated to us about the five major types of sacrifices, each of them highlighting a different aspect of the problem that we have due to sin and a unique aspect of the pure holiness that God alone possesses. And it's in this section that we learn much. We see the different types of sacrifices Israel had to offer. We see the frequency with which some of them were offered. And we get an up-close and personal picture of the brutal nature of animal sacrifices. We learn here some of what's necessary for atonement to take place that the people might be accepted before God. We are reminded with a potent and powerful visual that sin is a deadly endeavor And it leads to utter destruction. And this is on full display as the sacrificial system makes clear that if our sin problem is going to be dealt with, then there is going to have to be a bloody knife and a burning altar. But these chapters also declare a message of mercy and grace. Amidst the horrors of the sacrificial system, we see that God himself is opening up a path God is the one who takes initiative. He's the one making a way for people to once again be in right standing before Him. If life with God is going to be possible, then a sacrificial substitute must be offered in your place. And in the Old Testament, these sacrifices were offered continually because sin took place continually. And these animal sacrifices had no real ability to deal with the ultimate problem. Hebrews 10 verse 4 tells us, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And the sacrificial system served the ultimate purpose of pointing to the final sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, namely Jesus himself. According to John 1.29, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who did what the animal sacrifices could never do. He's the one who accomplished what the entire system could never accomplish. Which is why Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. With the offering up of himself as the perfect and spotless sacrifice, Jesus put an end to all the sacrifices. But as we continue our study this evening, our passage goes on to highlight something else that's required if the people want to enjoy life in the presence of God again. If humanity is going to be restored to a right relationship with God, it'll take more than a sacrifice. It'll require more than a bloody knife and a burning altar. If the people are going to be accepted before God, if the problem is truly going to be resolved, it will also depend upon the work of a consecrated representative. You see, as Leviticus chapter 8 begins, there's a real shift in the book. While the first seven chapters focus primarily on the sacrifices themselves, These next few chapters give attention and consideration to the individuals who would be charged with mediating those sacrifices, namely the priests. And the opening verses of Leviticus 8 set the stage for what's to follow in our text. So follow along with me as I read the first five verses of Leviticus chapter 8. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. And the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. What we have here in these opening verses of the chapter is the preparation for the establishment of a most significant office, the priesthood. Moses is present. The individuals who are going to be the first priests, Aaron and his sons are present. Particular garments are brought for the priests oil that's going to be used. Animals are present for the sacrifices. There's bread and a group of men that stood as representatives for the whole nation. This occasion is both solemn and sobering. It is no light matter to approach the presence of the living God. But this is an occasion that is also full of joy and hope because by faith, through the mediatorial work of the priests and the sacrificial offerings, the people will be able to enjoy life in the presence of God again. Now, if you're familiar with the the previous biblical content, you'll remember that God made a statement about the priesthood and the nation of Israel back in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. There we read, Now therefore, if you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, when we come to this section of a passage in Leviticus, God has done an extraordinary work amidst this group of people. And in doing so, He has set them apart for special service to Him. And He's calling them to express this by the manner in which they live. This is made abundantly clear in Leviticus chapter 18, verses 3 and 4. There we read, You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You see, the people of Israel were not to be like the other nations of the world. They were to be distinct and different. They were to be separate and set apart. As a collective group, they're to function like a kingdom of priests to the world. And in a similar way, the priests are distinct and different from the rest of Israel. They are set apart and separate from the rest of the nation. In establishing the role and function of the priest, in setting up this office for ancient Israel, God is making a loud and profound declaration about His own pure and undefiled holiness. It is as if God is saying, yes, Israel, I redeemed you. I delivered you. Yes, I set you apart from the other nations of the world, but you on your own still cannot come into my presence. I want you to experience the blessings and benefits of life in my presence, but it's going to require the work of a consecrated representative. It's going to depend upon the function of a set-apart priesthood. And with that said, I want to begin to explore what follows here in Leviticus 8, 9, and 10. We're going to highlight some of the things that are found in these chapters. We won't cover everything, but my goal is to give you a better understanding of this section of this book so that we might have a better grasp of the whole. In doing so, I simply want to ask three questions 
in the rest of our time this evening. Three questions that will guide our study. So let's begin with the first question, and that's this. How were the priests set apart? How were the priests set apart? This is particularly dealt with in Leviticus chapter 8. On the surface, it may appear odd how quickly and abruptly the focus of the book changes. The first seven chapters, again, deal with the sacrifices, and now chapters 8 through 10 give time and attention to the priests. But remember, again, this is not a book just of rules and rituals. This is a book about the character of God and the work of God among the people of God. And in this book, he explains what must be done to enjoy life in the presence of God again. Here in Leviticus, we witness the kindness of God on display as he extends an invitation, welcoming people back into his presence. The sacrifices were necessary for this, but so are the representatives. Sacrifices were to be offered, but only particular individuals could approach and place them on the altar. This was the job and function of the priests. And so what Moses does in Leviticus chapter 8 is communicate what must be done so that the priests can do what they're called to do. In other words, this chapter shows us what sets apart the priests from the normal common Israelite so that the priests can do what the normal common Israelite could not do. Now, more detailed description of many of these things are found in Exodus 28 and 29, but our time and attention now is going to be given to chapter 8. And in answering our question, how were the priests set apart, I want to point out five brief things that we see in this passage. First, they had to be washed. They had to be washed. Leviticus 8 verse 6, And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. Moses is functioning here in a, in a unique role. He's being used by God in establishing the initial priests and consecrating them for their duties. The, the first thing that must be done is that they must be washed. And here we're confronted with the significance of being clean. Physical cleanliness is a massive deal all throughout the book of Leviticus. However, the necessity of outward cleansing was a symbolic reminder of the importance of inward cleansing. God is never fooled. He's never pleased simply by outward ritualistic practices. Just as God would take no pleasure in a sacrifice that was offered without proper heart intentions, God is not pleased with priestly work that's conducted with clean hands but an evil heart. Psalm 24 verses 3 and 4 says this, "'Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord?' And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Isaiah 1.16 says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. The fact that the priests had to be clean on the outside was a vivid and ongoing reminder that what was really required was cleanliness on the inside, from the heart. The ritualistic cleansing was to be an outward manifestation of the inner heart desire of the priests themselves. Those who approach the presence of God must be ceremonially pure and ritualistically clean, but this is to be matched in the heart. The people in general couldn't come too close to God. They could not waltz into the presence of God. 
So God, in his kindness and mercy, establishes the office of the priest that there might be some who work in close proximity to God. This was done to the end that the Lord and his people could dwell together safely. But not only did they need to be washed, they also needed to wear special clothes. Leviticus chapter 8, verses 7 through 9. And he put the coat on him, that is in reference to Aaron, and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him. And in the breastpiece, he put the orim and the thummim. And he set the turban on his head. And on the turban in front, he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, speaking again specifically here of Aaron, the high priest, these verses tell us he had to wear a coat, a sash, a robe, an ephod, which was like a long apron. A band was tied around the ephod. He wore a breastpiece over his torso, and there was a turban on his head. I want you to think for a moment about how the clothing that someone wears may communicate something about what that person does. And there are all sorts of lines of work and types of service that are marked by particular clothes. What team a professional athlete plays for by the jersey that he wears. It's clear that those who work at Chick-fil-A or Publix, they're easily distinguishable by their uniform. If a soldier is decked out in his full attire, it says something about who he is and, and how he serves. And in much the same way, the clothing that the priest wore was a message about his role and function. Here's the way one author put it. Essentially, a uniform draws attention to the office or function of a person, as opposed to his individual personality. It emphasizes his job rather than his name. In a religion in which the principal doctrine was the holiness of God, the high priest who mediated atonement between God and man was an extremely important person. The glorious, beautiful clothing drew attention to the supreme dignity and holiness of the high priestly office. His costly garments symbolized the value of his ministry to the nation. See, the role of the priest, which was typified by the high priest, was primarily a twofold function. They were both to represent God to the people and represent the people before the presence of God. The beautiful nature of their majestic attire was a visual representation and reminder to the people of the extraordinary majesty of God. The clothes they wore said much more about what they did than who they were. When seen, the, the priest's clothes were to cause the minds of the Israelites to be enamored with the one that the priests served rather than the ones who were doing the serving. In comparison to the people, the priests in general and the high priest in particular looked like royalty because they were employed in the service of the king of kings. But if they're going to be set apart, not only do they need to be washed and wear special clothes, next we see that they needed to be anointed with, with oil. This is found in verses 10 through 12. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. The oil served to fulfill a number of 
purposes. We should note that it's clear here and elsewhere in the Bible's story that anointing takes place to dedicate things for holy service and use. Here it's poured out in the tabernacle, its furnishings, and on the high priest himself. It's used to set these things apart for special and holy purposes, to be used and function in the presence of God. This is what is meant by the word consecrate, which is used in verse 10, 11, and 12. We should also note that the anointing oil was used to symbolize the very blessing of God, the blessing of God that's being poured out among these people. David, speaking about this in Psalm 23, draws attention to this same reality when he said, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. The blessing of God is witnessed in this beautiful and pleasing fragrance that the oil would give off. Remember, here in Leviticus, the Israelites are they're at the base of Mount Sinai. They're in a desert wilderness. They have tons of animals with them. It would not be hard to imagine some of the smells. And yet, as one approached the tabernacle, the rich and dignified smell that was given off by the oil would remind the people of the very presence of God. It would serve to strengthen their faith that it's here that God's pouring out His rich blessing on us. And here, He's inviting us to meet with Him on the basis of offerings and the mediatorial work of the priests. But next, we see that the priests also had to have sacrifices offered in their place. Look with me at verses 14 to 21. Then He brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering, and he killed it. And Moses took the blood and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it and purified the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat, and Moses burned them on the altar." But the bull and its skin and its flesh and its dung he burned up with fire outside the camp as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram and he killed it. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces and Moses burned the head in the pieces and the fat. He washed the entrails and the legs with water and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. Now notice here that these sacrifices are being offered in the place of Aaron and his sons. This is evident by the fact that they're the ones who are laying their hands on the head of the animal. But the blood of these animals that are offered, they're not just used to purify the individuals. They're also used to purify the location. The mere presence of Aaron and his sons in the tabernacle has defiled the tabernacle. It's made it unclean. And so through the offering of these sacrifices, the tabernacle is going to be cleansed. This is a clear reminder that the priest, even the high priest, they're not perfect people. We should be struck here once again with the confounding mercy of God. The fact that Aaron is the high priest is shocking. He's the one who facilitated the construction and worship of the golden calf back in Exodus 32. While, while Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving commands from the Lord, Aaron was the one who failed to properly lead the people and assisted them in idol worship. And yet even in a book like Leviticus, we see God depicted as one who is full of mercy 
and abundant in grace. Although the priests were called by God and set apart for God, by themselves, they, just like everybody else, they're completely unfit to approach the presence of God. And if they're going to draw near, if they're going to work and function in the presence of God, then their sins are going to have to be atoned for that they might be accepted. The fifth and final thing that we see take place in chapter 5 in terms of how the priests were set apart is that they had to have blood applied to themselves. Look with me at verses 22 through 24, and then we'll jump down to verse 30. We read, Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears, and on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. And then verse 30. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the, and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments, and also on his sons and his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Now, notice that the blood is applied to Aaron and his sons. It's put on the the right ear, the right thumb, and the right big toe. And throughout chapter 8, there is a clear connection established between the place of offering, which is the altar, and the one who will place the offering on the altar, and those are the priests. By the very blood that was offered on the altar, Aaron and his sons are now consecrated to offer ongoing sacrifices at the altar. But the placement of blood on these three very specific locations can seem a bit odd, even strange. We're not told the the details. We don't have all the specifics. But I do think it's safe to say that these three parts are serving as representatives for the whole person. One commentator said this, The right-handed side was considered the more important and favored side. The priest must have consecrated ears to ever listen to God's holy voice, consecrated hands at all times to do holy deeds, and consecrated feet to walk evermore in holy ways. And as the chapter comes to a close, we find, again, a solemn and sobering statement. Look with me at verses 34 through 36. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you do not die. For so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. All of this was done so that you do not die. Because again, it's, it's good to be in the presence of God. This is the aim. This is the design. This is what we were made for. But sin makes this incredibly dangerous. God is perfectly holy. He's completely clean. He's transcendent in purity. We aren't. We failed. We have fallen short. We have sinned and we've rebelled against God. Sin cuts us off from God. And only by approaching Him according to the means by which He prescribes can we safely dwell with Him. Any deviation from this results in death. Precise instruction is to be met with exact obedience. 
Throughout the section, the obedience of Moses and Aaron is stressed over and over again. God desires his people to follow him in covenant obedience, so he warns the priest to do all that he commands. And yet, while the warning is a negative one, again, so that you do not die, it's given for a positive purpose, so that you may live. God intends to be with his people. He's inviting them to approach him, pleading with them to draw near in accordance with his instruction. God wants his people to know him and have a a right relationship with him. The priests are necessary for this to take place. And in order for them to be set apart, they must go through the ordination process laid out in chapter 8. But as the passage continues, chapter 9 presents us with another question. Why were the priests set apart? Why were the priests set apart? Look with me at the opening verses of Leviticus chapter 9. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord." And here we see Aaron now in his office as high priest, functioning and carrying out his priestly duties. And the first thing we see that he's directed to do is to gather and offer more sacrifices. First for himself and his own sins, and then for the people and their sins. This is a critical work. The sacrifices are being offered for a most important purpose. Look at verse 6. And Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. This is the aim of the whole system. Deal with the problem of human sin. This is the thing that cuts us off and separates us from God. This is what keeps us from life with God. But if sins are dealt with by faith through the work of a consecrated representative and the shed blood of a sacrificial substitute, then the people will be blessed by God with the very presence of God. The goal is not simply that the presence of God would appear. The goal is that it would remain. The aim is not momentary reunion. The aim is restoration. The design of the whole system is not just approaching God, but maintaining proximity to God himself. This is why the priests were set apart, that they might mediate this work that the people would be able to enjoy the ongoing blessing and benefit that's found in a life that is lived in the presence of God, the primary blessing of God being the very presence of God himself. If God isn't present in the tabernacle, then then any sacrificial offering and any work and function of the priest, it's meaningless and, and useless. Now, as the passage continues, we see in verses 8 through 14 that Aaron offers up the animals that were previously mentioned as a sacrifice for his own sins. And then in verses 15 to 21, he offers up the previously mentioned animals for the people's sins. But I want to draw your attention to verses 22 through 24, which help us see clearly once again the goal 
of all of this. Leviticus 9:22 through 24 says this, then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. After offering the sacrifices that are described in the previous verses, Aaron turns toward the people and he prescribes a blessing to them. And what he said exactly, we can't be, we can't be sure. Maybe it was the blessing that the Lord instructed him to pronounce in Numbers Chapter 6, verses 24 to 26, where we read these words. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. And regardless of what His actual words were, I mean, after blessing the people, we read that Moses and Aaron both enter the tabernacle. This is described as the tent of meeting in verse 23. After faithfully obeying the commands of God, the glorious presence of God appears to all the people. Fire goes out from the revealed presence of God, consuming the sacrifice of the burnt offering that was on the altar. And this is met with a loud shout from the people and a posture of humility as they fall on their faces before God. And this would be a great place for the passage to end. The people have encountered the glorious presence of God on the basis of a sacrificial substitute and as a result of representation provided by the priest. And in many ways, this looks at least in part like a solution to the problem. But this isn't the end. And as is the case in the Old Testament, whenever we come upon a great moment in the story, whenever we encounter a peak or a high moment, a discouraging scene is sure to follow. Since the promised one from Genesis 3.15 is not arrived yet at this point in the Bible story, we are not yet where we need to be. And so this brings us to the third and final question we'll consider briefly this evening. Is the priesthood really necessary? Is it necessary? Look with me at the first three verses of chapter 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And throughout chapter 8 and 9, we are struck with the necessity of careful and diligent obedience. Remember the phrase from chapter 8, verse 35, the priests were commanded to do certain things so that they did not die. The very fire that came out from the presence of God to consume the sacrifice at the end of chapter 9 has now come out from the presence of God, only this time to consume Nadab and Abihu. And the exact details of what these two sons of Aaron did, we don't know. We could speculate, but it would be speculation. 
What's evident from the passage is that they attempted to approach the presence of God in some type of wrong and inappropriate manner. This is made clear by the phrase at the end of verse 1, which he had not commanded them, or as the NIV puts it, contrary to his command. They didn't esteem God as infinitely holy. They didn't approach God carefully. They didn't function in the revealed presence of God reverently. They were not careful to do all that he commanded. And so they died. They died. And there are some who may be prone to think, yikes, that's pretty harsh. God, couldn't you give them a grace period? Couldn't you give them a time to to learn? Maybe let them make a few more mistakes before the pressure's on? I mean, they did one wrong thing. Do they really have to to die? Well, God told the priests, if you, you don't obey all I've commanded you, you die. And we see in this passage that God keeps his, his word. That's a good thing. God can be trusted. When he says it, he'll do it. When the fire came out from the presence of God at the end of chapter 9, consuming the offering, it was met with a shout from the people. Here, the fire came out from the presence of God, consuming the sons of Aaron, and it's met with silence from him. The sin of Nadab and Abihu in the tabernacle and their dead bodies now lying in the tabernacle poses another problem. Their sin makes this clean space of the tabernacle unclean once again. Their dead bodies in the tabernacle make the space unclean as well. How can a holy and pure God continue to dwell in the midst of an unclean space and in the midst of unclean people? Well, that question is answered as the book continues. But what do we learn from the things that we've looked at this evening? How can the truths that we've discussed from these three chapters be applied to our lives today? Obviously, we aren't ancient Israel. There are no animal sacrifices for us to bring before the Lord. There are no human representatives that we need to approach in order to gain access into the presence of God. So, so what do we learn here? Well, certainly this passage teaches us about the pervasive impact of sin. Sin affects and pollutes everyone and everything. All the purifying rituals we see in these chapters are declaring that nothing is clean. No one is pure because sin defiles everything. Psalm 14.3 says they have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. The fact that the priests had to have sacrifices offered for themselves and their own sin, it hints at the reality the priests aren't going to be able to do what needs to be done. They're going to prove to be ineffective and to finally and fully remove sins. They're afflicted and affected by the same sinful condition as the people. But praise God, He sent a better priest. He sent His own Son, not only as the perfect sacrifice, but as the perfect priest. Speaking of Jesus, Hebrews 7.27 says this, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. You see, the Israelites were instructed to draw near by faith and to approach God on the basis of a sacrifice with the priest acting as representatives before the presence of God. We too are instructed to draw near by faith and approach God on the basis of a sacrifice, the atoning death of Jesus, with Jesus himself functioning as our great high priest, the one who stands as our representative before the Father.
It is through the mediatorial work of Jesus as the great high priest that we find access into the presence of God. By faith through his effective work, both as the spotless sacrifice and the perfect priest, we are delivered from the penalty of our sins and saved for eternity. And Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. But if we go through him, we get to the Father. And Jesus doesn't just function as our great high priest at the moment of salvation. He continues in this role all throughout the Christian life. He always intercedes on our behalf. Because of his ongoing priesthood, we can always draw near to God through prayer. Look at what Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so if you're here this evening and you've never trusted in Jesus, then recognize that your sins are still on your account. And there's nobody acting as a mediator between God and you. If you die in this state with unforgiven sin, with sin that has not been repented of, then what happened to Nadab and Abihu is exactly what happens to you. They were destroyed because of their sins, so it will be with you. The sacrificial system teaches us that something must die because of our sin. Death is what we deserve. Jesus is the only sufficient sacrificial substitute, and He alone is the perfect mediator. If you fail to look to Him, then you face the punishment of your sin. You're cast off forever. You're eternally separated from God. But it doesn't have to be this way. Look to Jesus. Recognize you've sinned against the God of the universe. Recognize your sin cuts you off from His presence. Your sin makes it impossible for you to have a relationship with Him. But God does the impossible. He's in the business of making the impossible happen. He sent His Son as the perfect sacrifice and the great high priest to pay for sin and represent people before the presence of God so that through faith in Him we might be restored. So look to Him. And if you have trusted in Him, if if you are seeking to walk faithfully with Him, then, then be mindful of the great lengths that the Israelites had to go through in order to gain access to God. The multitude of sacrifices, the set apart priesthood, all of that fulfilled in the person of Jesus. If you've trusted in Him, then then you have direct access to God. You're restored to a right relationship with God. And because the Word of God can be trusted, you can be confident and filled with hope that one day you'll enjoy life in the perfect presence of God. You'll be restored to unhindered fellowship and intimate union with God forever. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for the truth of your Word. We're thankful for glorious truths in a passage like this. Lord, on the surface, it feels so outdated. It feels so foreign, so strange, and yet it is highly relevant and incredibly practical. Lord, would you help us to be mindful and appreciative and so thankful and grateful for the mercy you've shown us in the person 
of Jesus, all that he's accomplished on our behalf, dying as a spotless sacrifice, functioning as a perfect mediator between us and your holy presence. And it's, it's through him that we have access to you once again. Lord, help us to embrace that truth and to live in light of it. Would you motivate us to be people who are serious about holiness, Lord, not because we are attempting to gain something from you, but because we have been given everything by you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray and offer our thanks. Amen.